The word of God from Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. If you would remain standing with me just for a moment, I'd like to pray for our time in the word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for revealing yourself to us, for revealing us to us in your word. Help us to understand it. Lord, we just ask that the meditation of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight this morning. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Jason Walsh. I'm the associate pastor here at Denver Presbyterian Church, and it is great to be here with you this morning. It's exciting. It's fun, and I hope it's going to be fun for you. Um, For many of you, you know that there was a season where it was just the Jason show all the time, and you were like, yeah, we kind of got worn out by that. He was kind of like the MCU. It just kept coming and coming and coming, and so now you got a break, right? And, but... Now I'm back, and hopefully you'll also feel that, like, you know, in coming back, it's not just a whole lot more, you know, it's not like, it's not like the sequel trilogy and, some, and Book of Boba Fett where you're just like, eh, I mean, it's still Star Wars, like, you know, but, you know, you're, you're kind of making the excuse of, like, you know, all pizza is a welcome thing, you know, some of it's good, some of it's not, but, like, hopefully me coming back is more like Andor, where you're like, yes, this is why I started like, liking this stuff in the first place. Um, so for those of you who don't recognize these references, please just sit back and relax. This is how I do. Um, the people who know me know that that's going to happen, and apologies, um, I can explain. I can be the explainer later, but I don't want to waste too much time because I am excited to get into the story that we're going to have today. It's a beautiful story. It's a love story. And this love story is the entirety of the book of Ruth. Because as we are contemplating this season and getting into Advent, um, we're looking at the mothers of Jesus. We're exploring these women who are part of Jesus' lineage, the Son of God incarnate, incarnated in a family, in a family system that has all of the complications and twists and turns of any of our family systems. And if you think that your family doesn't have some weird twists and turns, all I have to do is ask maybe three questions and the weird stories start coming out. Like, oh yeah, Aunt Betty, who had to be in a coma for a while because she got some bad acid at Woodstock. Or, you know, like everybody has some weird stuff in their family, including our Savior, Jesus. And that's one of the themes that we are looking at when we look at the mothers of Jesus, especially because from the, from the genealogy, 
which was extremely important in the ancient Near East literature, the genealogy of Jesus that's given in the book of Matthew calls out Ruth by name. And what's interesting about that is, in the literature of the time, if you were telling people, well, this is the my family and these are the people in my family, it was a way of building your resume, building your credibility, saying, it's right that I have influence, it's right that I have power, it's right that you should listen to me when I tell you my life story because of all these people in my family. Well, this one flies in the face of it because this genealogy has a lot of people that did a lot of big time messing up, and then you come to Ruth and you're like, wait a minute, wait, Ruth, really? Well, as we get into the story, you'll probably understand why. This was an interesting way to introduce Jesus to those who are wondering, is he really the Jewish Messiah? Because instead of saying what Paul was able to say of like, you know, oh, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was, you know, circumcised on the eighth day and brought up in righteousness and all that. And he's giving his like family tree of righteousness. This is Jesus, the actual righteous one saying, yeah, we've all got family. And so this story that we're about to hear is going to give us some insight into Jesus himself, but also into how God works through people like us, people with families, histories, hard experience. And so I'm going to take a hard shift into my introduction right now by just bringing up Hallmark Christmas movies. I am not familiar that much with Hallmark Christmas movies. The main reason I understand it is from seeing online people posting this massive collage of all the poster images from all these Hallmark Christmas movies. And what you start to recognize is there's a pattern. There's a man wearing a green jacket and a woman wearing a red dress. And there are all these soft lights in the background, and it's some sort of Christmas title to the movie. And they're apparently very formulaic. There's a problem. There is a way that they get introduced. There are obstacles to overcome once they actually know that they like each other. And once the obstacles are overcome, they live happily ever after in a conveniently timed opportunity for them to celebrate their blossoming love at Christmas time. Now, does anybody want to, like, challenge my understanding of this in case I got it wrong? It's okay. This is a safe space. But why do we want to hear that love story? I think we want to hear that love story because we want to know that it does work out. Because I can't think of a single person who never experienced heartbreak in their relationships, whether it's with their family, their friends, or their significant other. That just goes with the territory. We are complicated people who not only carry the effects of sin in our life, but we sin, you know? People are selfish, hurt us, and guess what? Hurt people hurt people, and we end up doing things that we regret and it makes those relationships complicated. And so we have this hunger and this desire to see these relationships work out, to see good things happen. We want the happily ever after. And that's not a bad thing. 
Sometimes it can be naive, but it's not a bad thing. Having an ideal in mind is not a sin. It's when we get perfectionistic or cynical about it that it becomes a bad thing. And so I think that's why these movies are popular. I think it's why we love love stories. And this is a beautiful love story. So I have a challenge that I have set for myself. I'm going to try not to keep you here very long, but we're going to talk through all four chapters of the book of Ruth so that you can understand why this reading that we heard Jenny read for us, why it's there, why it matters, why the end of the story is so beautiful. Because what we have is we have a story in three parts. Part one is kind of love that goes from sweet to bitter. In part two, we have a love that displays covenant kindness. And in part three, we have love and redemption. It kind of follows that arc of those Hallmark Christmas movies, right? Let's get into it. This story opens, and for those of you who may want to uh, take a look at where I'm going to pull all of this stuff... um, You can find the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, and you'll find it by following the the series of books. If you find Joshua, just go, Joshua judges Ruth, which is also a sentence. And not just a sentence, it's my favorite Lyle Lovett album. But, um, But Joshua judges Ruth gets you there, and the book of Ruth begins by telling us not about Ruth immediately, but about Naomi. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, was married to Elimelech, and Elimelech um, takes them into Moab, Naomi and their two sons, their two sons being named Malon and Chilion. Don't worry, you don't have to remember those names. They're not in the story long, unfortunately. But they move out of Bethlehem because there's a famine, and they move into Moab, which is on the other side, it's east of the Dead Sea. From Bethlehem. If you're aware of the, the geography, you have Jerusalem and Bethlehem nearby, and then you've got the Dead Sea, and then you've got Moab. And it's not Utah. And Moab, Moab got its name from the, the, the head of that tribe, the head of that people, Moab, who was, um, well, his family history for Moab, uh, I'm just going to suffice to say there's a lot there. Thank you, the one person who giggled for me. Um, But Moab was one of these areas that was definitely not part of God's chosen people, Israel. It was definitely not part of those who followed Yahweh. They followed their own gods. They followed their own ways because they came out of God's people after a calamitous event in the life of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. They weren't God's people. They were outsiders. But they go, Elimelech takes his family to live amongst them because if there's no food in Bethlehem, you've got to live somewhere there's food. And so they live there. And then something sad happens. Elimelech dies. And then there's a happy thing that happens. Naomi's like, you know, well, this is bad, but I still have my sons. And her sons marry. They marry women from Moab. And... That's happy. But then her sons die. And so here's Naomi with her her daughters-in-law. And her daughters-in-law are Orpah and Ruth. 
And she says to them, you know what? I've heard in the field, I've heard that things are better in Bethlehem. I'm going to head back. And so the daughters-in-law are like, okay, we'll go with you. But then Naomi tells them, no, 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 no. There's still an opportunity for you to stay here in Moab, to get married, to have kids, to have a life. I don't have that. My husband is dead. And with my husband being dead, it means that I don't even have a claim to his property. His, his brother actually has that. I don't have that. And so I'm just going to go see what I can do. And I don't want to put that trouble on you. And they're like, no, no, you shouldn't. And she insists. She says, no, because I care about you, don't take the problems of my life on you. Just go and make a life for yourself. And so Orpah, like, hugs her and kisses her and makes her way. And it had to be hard, but it was justifiable. Orpah's not a bad lady for trying to make her, her own life still in Moab. But Ruth, Ruth goes this extra mile, and she says, I want to stay with you. But see, this is how bad it had gotten for Naomi. Like, Naomi's name actually means gentle, compassionate. She's the kind of person that you would describe, that I would describe, as sweet. She's sweet. But because of the love that she had for her husband, for her sons, and in the midst of grief, that sweetness metastasized into bitterness. So much so that when they actually arrive in Bethlehem, people are like, isn't this the lady who left with Elimelech? And she said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. That's what Mara means. It means bitter. The love that she had known that was now gone just twisted and turned in her to be this bitterness. And she says something really profound in the midst of her grief. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I think it's good for us to just spend a moment thinking about what this means. This is the Bible in the Old Testament, in one of the older sections of the Bible, being very real about what grief does to us, that it empties us out, that it leaves us feeling hollow. Naomi had known good things, and then those good things went away, and the difficulty of it, the hardness of that became a hardness in her. And yet it even started from a good place. You don't grieve like that unless there's really a profound love that's in some ways persisting. But it's really, really hard to see this love go from sweet to bitter. And that's part one of this story. Part two... Part two is what brings us into a really interesting dynamic because sometimes love is expressed through a covenant kindness. And I'm saying covenant kindness because there is a promise within it. 
It's not love merely as feeling, merely as sentiment. It's love as a I am in, I'm all in with you. It's a love that says, I have these feelings and I promise to behave, to conduct myself, to act toward you consistently with these feelings in the future. Indefinitely. I'm going to conduct myself as someone who loves you in this. And I think that's an important way for us to understand the love that's being expressed in this second part because, because many times the temptation can be for us to think that love is just the feeling. And the feeling's awesome. The feeling is awesome to love somebody, to know that you just want to have them in your life. But it's more than that. It's a commitment that says, and I'm going to love you. It's part of how wedding vows got formed into that commitment, that covenant, for better, for worse, for sick, or for well, for, you know, it, it's, it's just all wrapped up in that commitment. And Ruth makes this commitment to Naomi that says, I'm committed to love you, to care for you, to be with you in this mess. She's still just her daughter-in-law, but she's saying, I'm going to live like you, I belong to you. I'm going to be in the midst of your people. I'm going to honor your God. Your God will be my God. And that's what happens just slightly before what happened when they return in chapter 1. You hear Ruth respond. To Naomi. And remember, Naomi's still being loving toward her daughters in law and says, No, don't come with me. But then Ruth says in verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the God do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth, who is also grieving, her father-in-law has passed away, her husband has passed away, and she did not yet have a child with him. So she has no claim in this world either. And she says to Naomi, but I'm all in with you. And where you go, I'm going to go. That kind of commitment, it's a promise of love. It's a promise to be with that person. And that is a beautiful picture of covenant kindness. Ruth didn't have to do that. She wasn't compelled to do it, but she chose to do it. And we also see this covenant kindness show up in what happens when they, when they get established there in Bethlehem. Now remember, they don't have access to their husband's properties, what they have access to is the kindness of those around them. And what happens is they figure out that there's this fellow who owns land named Boaz. And Boaz has property where he's growing crops, and they just figure out, okay, we have a connection here, slim as it is, we'll glean there, which gleaning is what was effectively like the panhandling of its day. 
They were depending on the kindness of those who were harvesting to leave a little bit behind so that they could go and gather it. It was, in some ways, the Old Testament social safety net for the people of Israel. They had laws. They had rules around this. And this gleaning was a beautiful thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, it says this, when you reap your harvest, that is, when you gather your harvest in, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This was set out in God's law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It was a way that God said, this is how I want you to be in the world. I want you to be the kind of people who even when you're gathering your crops, when you're harvesting, when you're going to see the literal fruit of your labor, of your work, don't take every possible part of it. Leave some around for those who've had it tough, who've had a hard break. Leave some around so that they can in their own minimally dignified way earn their own keep by just gathering what was left behind. It was this beautiful covenantal structure of compassion, this covenantal love your neighbor in a very tangible, practical way that God's people was supposed to practice. Now, did all of God's people practice it? No, but Boaz did. And Boaz specifically when Naomi went to meet him, like Naomi went to go talk to him and introduced Ruth and said, this is my daughter-in-law, she's going to be gleaning in your field. And what does Boaz say to Ruth? He says, stay near to the young woman I've got in the field. And I've told my young men not to touch you. Stay near to those ladies, glean what you need. He offers not only this opportunity to gather what she needs, but he extends it and he says, and I'll make sure you're safe. Making sure she's safe means that there's obviously a danger. Gleaning in and of itself may have meant that she had opened herself up to be attacked or to even assault, being assaulted by the, by the young men in the field. And he offers protection from both. And he says, I care about you. I care that this is going to go well for you. And so you have this nested covenantal love, not just the covenantal love of everyone in God's people that they should have for their neighbor. You have that, but nested within it, you have Boaz specifically calling out Ruth and saying, and I want you to know that you're safe, that you're good, and that I've got you covered. Ruth made this promise to Naomi it was just this raw commitment of love. Boaz makes a promise that not only reveals his interest in Ruth, but it's nested in God's covenant love that he wants to see us, his people, distribute throughout the world. And here's what I see in this, in this second part of the story. I see that it's no different now. 
Sure, we don't live with all of the different ceremonial and societal and dietary laws of the Old Testament, but the principle under it is still the same that we are to care for people. We as God's people should have practices that regularly invite people in to experience love and acceptance that God brings through the gospel. We need to be the kind of people who look out for others and make a way for them to help themselves. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you know what's even more beautiful about this? I was thinking like, okay, how, how do I help land this for people? But I realized I don't have to. This week, when the deacons put out the request that we give on Tuesday to the Mercy Ministry Fund, the hope was, the thing we were praying for was maybe we can get $15,000. Denver Press, do you know what you did? You provided nearly $32,000 for that fund. That's beautiful. That's gleaning. That's the thing where we're leaving. We're not taking everything we earn and keeping it for ourselves. We're leaving some available to those who've had it rough so that they can make their way in the world with us. It's a beautiful, loving demonstration of the power of God to not only love us into his kingdom, but make us lovers of others. And that's beautiful. So part three. Part three is the love and redemption. This is where the obstacles that are in the way are overcome, right? But what's the obstacle with Ruth and Boaz getting together? Because like, she's like, he's a good man, and he's like, she's a good woman. Like, she loves her mother-in-law that much that she would do all the work to keep them afloat. So they're interested in each other, but there's something in the way. You see... There was this concept called the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was this way for widows not to be left with nothing. Now, I'm not saying that the way things were in this past were right and appropriate. I'm just going to state the way they were. Only men held property in the ancient Near East in the setting of this story. And so a widow wouldn't really have access even to that which her husband owned outright. What would happen is it would divert back to the closest male relative. So the closest male relative would be a brother, and then maybe an uncle, and then maybe an extra, you know, to the however many times removed. I never have understood cousin math, so I can't explain that, but... You've heard that kind of extension before. The closest male relative would have control of that property. But what could happen is someone else related could come to the closest relation and say, hey, I would like to buy that property. And they would say, okay, yeah, that could work. And if they could buy that property, they would also have to take on the responsibilities that go along with that property which only makes sense, right? You don't buy a house that you can't do the upkeep on. Well, unfortunately, in those days, the property also went with the responsibility to care for the widow. 
and even give the opportunity, not just care for the widow, but if they're childless, if that widow is childless, you would have a child with her so that the family name would continue, the family lineage would continue for that male relative. I know this sounds complicated. It sounds, I'm listening to myself and it's like, wow, this is the tax code, dude. Um, Pretty dry. But, uh, But bear with me. What happens is the closest male relative isn't Boaz, it's another dude. And so Boaz goes to that guy and says, hey, um, Elimelech died, do you want to buy his property? And the guy's like, yeah, I can do that. And he said, well, if you buy that property, you're taking on Naomi and Ruth. Are you good with that? And the guy's like, uh, no, that, that's not going to work for me, so you should do it. The obstacle was that legal property distinction around being a kinsman redeemer. But Boaz took it on, and he had to buy back that property. Now, we are in Denver. Do I need to explain to anyone that buying property is a big deal? Yeah, it was a big deal. It was very costly to Boaz to do this, but he did it. And he did it because he saw the beauty of this woman, not just her physical appearance, but the fact that she was the kind of person, the character of her was beautiful to him. She had already been married and widowed, so she wasn't just another maiden that would come across his path, but he saw her and he loved her, and he made this commitment to redeem her, to buy her back. And, spoiler alert, Who is our kinsman redeemer? It's Jesus. Jesus set his affection on us. He looked at us and he loved us so much that he said, I'll pay whatever it takes to get them back, to get you back. He gave everything. And he did it because he loves us. And that's why in Colossians, we hear Paul describe it as this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We, in our sin, were more hopeless than a widow in the ancient Near East. We are more hopeless in our sin than a woman who has to go around gleaning. There's no possible hope for us outside of Jesus making this difference for for us. And he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Redemption, being bought back. The forgiveness of sins. This is the beauty of this third part of the story. This love and redemption makes it all okay. And it's even better than okay. can Can we believe that God really can bless us? That he not only loves us, but that he likes us enough to give us good things on top of that? Because not only does Ruth marry Boaz, but then they are able to have a child. They have a boy. And it's a blessing to everybody. And Naomi's like back to being Naomi again. The sweetness has returned. She's got this grandson that she's able to care for and to help raise. And that grandson becomes the father of Jesse, 
who becomes the father of David, King David, in whose lineage the Messiah would come, so much so that a nickname for Messiah was Son of David. And guess who that Son of David is? It's Jesus. It's this beautiful, redemptive story. And and where we sometimes need help is we need to ask God, give me the faith to really believe that you love me and like me enough to give me those good things. And it's not, an, it's not a transaction. It's not if we love God, then he'll bless us with the thing we have in mind. No. If we give ourselves to God and are redeemed thoroughly by him, what we find is that the desire of our hearts, the deepest longing, not our idea of what that longing would be, but the actuality of it is brought forth and given to us and the deepest longings of our heart that we may not have even been able to express would come to pass. The dumbest illustration of this I can give you is I love dachshunds. I am also allergic to dachshunds. Did I think that a toy poodle would satisfy my great love of dogs? Absolutely not. But I have a dear, sweet little baby at home who is a toy poodle. That's a dumb illustration. But God does that kind of thing. He changes what we think we want into the reality of what we're actually deeply longing for, and he gives it to us. That's the beauty of the gospel. He so completely meets us where we are that he gives us what we didn't even realize we needed. And it's beautiful. And that is happening to these people who went to the deepest depths of despair, to the place where the sweetness of their life had become bitter in grief, and yet now they're experiencing a transcendent sweetness that's beyond anything they imagined. And it gets even better. I mean, I didn't know how to title this, like, closing, but, like, it's basically, but wait, there's more. Anybody watch, like, TV back in the 90s when, like, you know, every commercial on after 9 p.m. was like, but wait, there's more. You'll also receive these fabulous fiery faux diamond studded rings. Like, it's super cheesy, but, like, this is what happens. The good news of good, the good news of Jesus is not good just because of our desperate circumstances. It is good because of that, but there's more. That burden of sin, guilt, and shame is changed when we are forgiven. But there's more. The good news is good because we get into a right relationship with our God who seeks our good in all circumstances. He blesses us. But wait, there's more. The good news is good because God brings us into his huge redemption of all things and he makes all things new including using us to make things new. He's going to use us to make someone else's life transcendently better. Can you believe that? Honestly, I'm supposed to do it professionally, and I struggle to believe it on a daily basis. And yet, that's the reality. The good news is transcendently good because it's not just good for the trouble we were in, It's good for the good he brings us into, and it's good because he uses us to make other things even better. 
It's a love story that's a tsunami of love. It's not just ripples. It's a huge, overwhelming, beautiful love event that God is bringing us into. And this is corroborated by Paul in Ephesians. Chapter 5, he says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul is wanting us to see that even our simple faithfulness can be used by God to take the bad things and make them untrue, to take the hard things and return the sweetness into people's lives. That is a love story that's true that we are actually invited to become a part of. That's what it means to be found in this one named Jesus who came to us not from a perfect lineage. He came to us out of a family as messed up as each of our own families. And yet, he uses even people like us to spread his love in a world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Amen. And part of what he does when he invites us in is he invites us to his table. There's this beautiful passage in the 23rd Psalm that is David, King David, you know, the grandson of Obed, who was the son of Ruth. And David said, my God is my shepherd and I'm not going to be without. I'm going to have what I need. My needs will be met. More than that, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He invites me to a banquet when all around me is still difficult. He says, here, have your fill. And that's what this table is about. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. And as Paul reminds us, for as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he returns. So when we're invited to this table, we're invited to take Jesus' very sacrifice on our behalf and make it part of who we are. And it speaks to every part of us. It speaks to our vision. We see the elements to our hearing, we hear them, we can smell them, we can taste them, we can touch them. These are the ways that God is fully, in a full sensory experience, expressing to us just how much he loves us, that he gave his son so that we might have no obstacles to loving him. And that is the beauty of this meal. And this meal is not constrained by membership in this church. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you've asked him to forgive you, and you've asked him to be the Lord of your life, if you've been baptized with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this meal is for you. But if that's not where you are yet, 
this is still a beautiful time to contemplate what God might be inviting you to do, how he might be expressing his love to you and inviting you to participate in the love he has for all of this beautiful creation. So if you're not at a place where you have confessed your faith and been baptized into the membership of a church, just refrain from taking it during this season. If you're not sure that's where you are, then we just ask that you refrain, you remain seated while others celebrate because the operative thing, the, the thing that really makes it come together is the faith that you have in Jesus. And you have to have even the smallest amount will do, but you have to have it in order to partake of this meal. And so in just a moment, I'm going to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God will use these elements the way that he invites us to use them. I'm also going to pray for our children who have yet to come to a point in their life where they've professed their faith to the leadership of the church and have been invited into the table. And I'm going to pray for all of us that however we need to use this time, that we'll use it well to seek what God would have for us and how we would receive his love and extend it. When, after I've prayed, you will be at your leisure, you just come when you're ready to come down front. There will be two stations up at the front. If you need a gluten-free option, just ask the bread server. They're happy to provide one. And in the trays, you're going to find cups filled with wine, which is red, and grape juice, which is clear. Please just take the one that makes the most sense for you. But as I pray, let's all pray that God will use this time to reveal to us this, this true love story that he has for us in the gospel. And that it really is for us. And it really is true. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this meal. We pray that these elements would be used for your glory to communicate your grace to us in ways that we cannot avoid but receive. Make it a part of who we are, Lord. That sacrificial, committed love that says, I will pay everything to have you. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, work in this sacrament to seal in us the confidence, the faith that you really do love us, that you care for us. And Lord, for those children who are yet to receive the, the sacrament, we pray, Lord, that you would quickly bring them to a place in their life where they're ready to confess you and receive you and take their next step in obedience, following you. And Lord, for those who are seeking right now, I pray that you would lead them, Lord. Use the prayers that are in the worship guide, Lord, to, to bring them to a place of contemplating what you are potentially doing in their lives. And Lord, help us to be available to your spirit as you lead all of us during this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.